Hello, listener. It's Nortz here, Tiny Giant Jam, back on the wires. And I've got to say, I'm going to come up really close to the microphone. Have we got a treat for you today? Yes, we have, because um, he's in town. He's been in Bristol today. And uh, so I'm actually doing the front of the podcast, even though I've already done the interview, which is a bit weird, isn't it? Is that like a time machine thing going on? I don't know. Anyway, it's Bruce Daisley. We're talking to Bruce Daisley today. The Bruce Daisley. Not a Bruce Daisley. The Bruce Daisley. Oh, what's that you say? Who's Bruce Daisley? Well, not only is he the host of the acclaimed podcast, Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat, and if you're not familiar with it, I'd make myself familiar with it as soon as you stop listening to this one, because it is a thing of wonder. Um, but he's also the writer of the Sunday Times number one best-selling business book, The Joy of Work, one of which... I'm actually holding in my hand there, um, which is all very much about work culture and making it better and, and how to fall in love with it again. We all face those kind of questions, don't we, about the world of work and our cortisol levels and our stress and all that. So I was able to uh, catch up with him today and have a conversation about all sorts of things. And um, to be honest, the less I ramble now and the sooner you hear from Bruce, the more rewarding it will be. So um, let's hear what he's got to say. Welcome to uh, Bristol. Thank you. How's the trip down? Good. I used to work in, back in the day, I used to work in local radio sort of about 10, 15 years ago. And I've pretty much been to every city in the UK. Have you? So when, uh, you know, I turn up in somewhere, I turn up in Aberdeen or Dundee or I turn up in Chester or, or uh, Lincoln. People say, have you ever been to Lincoln before? Yes, I have. I have been to I've all... I've done all the time. So you've already, within the first few seconds of this interview... Given me so this is a jam, so we're going to jam. But you give me a clue about it, you see. So, just to give you expert, you came into my universe through your podcast, right? And I don't know if we have to talk about the podcast at length because if the listener wants to know about it, right? Because you are the high emperor of podcasting, in right? My opinion, okay, right? here we go. Now, now listen, and I reckon one of the reasons is because you've got a really engaging voice to listen to, right? right? And I've often thought when I first I thought, how does Chris Daisley get an engaging voice? Now I know the secrets, right? Local radio. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't a local radio presenter. I sort of more, worked you, more in the commercial it, side. It, it, yeah. It, it fell apart. You know what it, it taught me, though? I, I worked in commercial radio, and I sort of, that was where I uh, first started. And we used to be based in London and sort of represent radio stations around the country. Yeah. And we used to have people come in every week. And the one thing, I was chatting to a couple of friends who, who I, I first met um, through that job. And the, the thing that it taught us, bar none, was how to present yourself to strangers. Because every Tuesday morning, we used to have a radio station come in to present us in London. Yeah. And quite often, they used to wear their preconceptions of how they believed the audience were going to respond to them. So they would turn up, and quite often, like every week when we had Northern radio stations come in, they would come in and say, it's not flat caps and whippets up north. And the thing is, because we'd seen 200 presentations of, of people from up north, yeah. the only people who were, who were believing that the, we were going to judge them on flat caps and whippets were them. We didn't believe that that was the case. Um, and so it was so interesting. So the thing that it taught me was that your audience is often ready to be entertained 
you know, there's no such thing as a bad audience. No. These, the, you know, you but you've got to try and empathise with the frame of mind of the audience, and that's why so often when it comes to presentations, people turn up with what they want you to know, but they don't present it in a way that will make you want to consume it. Yeah, totally. Are you giving an idea there? If I was going to open an agency in Wakefield, it would probably be called. Flat caps and whippers. Yeah, big disaster. Big disaster. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be bottled. Out of now, we can talk about, we can we could talk about your highly successful podcast, Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. It's seminal to my life. We might come on to that some. I do worry, though, sometimes. You know, like adverts and stuff. I don't understand why you don't have any chafing ads at the front of your Every single podcast in the world has a shaving ad. Yeah, that, apart from you, you've got. So some it sounds like you must listen to a lot of blokey podcasts. I think I've. Um, you've I, metrosexual. I, my I, my podcast is on Acast, largely because I just wanted someone else to cover their serving costs, and it's ended up sort of making a little bit of money along the way. But um, yeah, I just wanted someone to cover the serving, the hosting costs. Fair enough. Fair enough. Now, so it could we could be talking about a podcast. You're here in Bristol today doing a talk. Uh, to be honest, associated with your highly successful Sunday Times best-selling book, The Joy of Work, right? And I'm sure we're, we're going to come to some of that. But I just want to ask you something that people maybe don't ask you, right? Because you do have a job, right? Don't you? You're, mm. you're the VP of Twitter, Mia, right? That's, mm. To me, that sounds like a big-ass job, right? So besides the fact you've got podcasts and you've got your speaking commitments and you're there somewhere authoring, is there a second book in the office? Um what I might do is, is, we were talking before about that, you know, you make no money out of books and no one would do a book for anything commercial. So consequently, <laughs> it's in my head, could I create something which requires the endeavour of a book but is free or is distributed in a different way? So, you know, I guess if you wanted to sort of unlock the, the, the Scouts badges, yeah. because I've, the book has been a, a bestseller, that... I, I know I no longer have that sort of desire to do that, but I'm I'm more thinking. Okay, a lot of people have got a lot from the work I've done about improving workplace culture, and they might be in this an environment where the boss always says no. Okay, that's an interesting case study, or the their work just seems to lack any team collective energy. Yeah. Right, that's an interesting case study, or their office is overwhelmed with meetings. That's an, so. I'm thinking more. Could I do? almost like instructive tutorials that are like free PDFs plus a a 45-minute podcast for eight different cases. And that's sort of what's in my head, really. That I, Rather than a second book, look, at who knows, I might do a second book. Yeah, but, they're, they're, they're going to lean on you, that book, and they're going to say, come on, we wait for that next. Yeah, I, d I don't know. I mean, but that's more what I'm thinking. So I'm thinking, I do these podcasts on fixing work, and it's more in my head thinking, right, when I come back, I want something that if someone is in a zone where office politics are killing them, this 45 minutes will be heavily researched, we'll have interview drop-ins from three or four in interesting people, and you can almost go back to it. This, that's sort of what's yeah. in my head. Okay. Now, I just want your day job then, right? I said for Twitter, it sounds like a big job. How do you have... What do you do... In the Twitter, right? I mean, I'm assuming you said, but like you have a boss, a lot of things you yeah. talk in the podcast about relationship pods. There was a great thing you did with Seth Godin, how you changed someone's opinions above you if you come to an ID office. But your is your boss uh, good to the voice? Is, is it Jack? Does Jack pick up the phone and go, Hi, Bruce, how's it, how's it going over in the. Uh, uh, what? 
boss Jack isn't my direct boss, but I do chat to to Jack that's, regularly. That's, a, that's interesting. Pippi Rubshaw. He's on the back of your book, isn't he? On the he's, like, a, he's, a, he's one of the blurbs. Yeah, he's one, one of the, the yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And Biz, you're on the phone to Biz. Uh, so look, you know, the, my direct boss. Uh, let me describe my job. My job involves a combination of trying to protect Twitter's reputation in countries like Spain, France, the Middle East, uh, you know, UK, and and grow our business there. And that has multiple elements of it. So there are occasional legal elements where uh, governments have got a perspective and we're resolute in that we always uh, we always publish every request we get from governments, yeah, um, and we, we we reserve a very high line in terms of you know we we protect the user at all costs, um, but you know so there'll be occasional interactions on those things or there'll be uh, big brands who want to do something with us. So it's a, it's it's a multifaceted job. There's elections recently in Spain, yeah, elections recently. Other territories that I work on, and so the team in the local market often needs some support in terms of actions we take during elections to drive voting and to. to support. You must be your time management then with all these other things, all these commitments. It must be amazing. I mean, also in in the Twitter, if if Bruce is in your office, it must be a great place to work because he's got all the he's got the ideas, the solutions, the theories. The I mean, strategies. what I will say, what I will say is that. People in our office laugh a lot. I think we've Amen. we've got a good culture, and it it wasn't always perfect. You know, like uh, the re- part of the reason why I got obsessed with this was to try and get course correct to get the culture back to a good place. After it had been incredible, then it sort of taken a turn. So for it's worse. The, your, your sort of interest and love and passion for this kind of work culture and how to make it better, which has manifested itself in. I believe seventy three. Not that I've done my research, but I have seventy three episodes of podcast. Yeah, book etc. Came from it. Did come from one particular thing, or is it so? Because obviously you had a career before. Yes. Yeah. Has that always been something about the next? When did the moment come? The seed would. Yeah. Thought, oh, I could do something to make work. Look, I mean, from my very first job. So when I was sixteen, I used to work in a fast food restaurant, and I used to do glass collecting in the evening, and. So very quickly, it became clear to me that there are some places I worked where we would laugh all the time. There was a great camaraderie. And then I would have simultaneous jobs elsewhere where I used to work at the convention centre in Birmingham. And the culture there was terrible. But one of the hotels I worked at in the evening was fantastic. So I had like I was operating multiple jobs, trying to earn a bit of um, money to put myself through uh, school and college. And um, and so it was really interesting for me. Why is this place a brilliant culture, and this place about? And I was always fascinated with that. What is it? And I guess the bosses create that environment to some extent. But the cultures. I worked at the Grand Hotel in Birmingham, and the culture there. The guy who ran wine waiting there was horrible and tyrannical, but the woman who ran the bar was really lovely and warm. And so it was clear to me that cultures can exist despite the bosses rather than because of the bosses at times. Yes, yeah, so you can have micro Yeah, it's really, yeah, you know. And so I was always interested. And my first job in London was I worked at part of Capital Radio and uh, and the culture, it was chaotic at times. It was really chaotic, sort of nascent computer systems probably weren't fit for purpose. It was described as faulty towers by, uh, by an outside uh, commentator 
but um, but it was incredibly good fun to work there. Yeah. And so I was like, I was always interested in those things. And you know, I've worked at some of the biggest tech firms in the world, and I know uh, what big te- tech firms can get right and what they can get wrong. Really. Mm-hmm. Okay. So then, that manifests itself at some point to your podcasts. So in terms of, again, the, the trigger of turning your thoughts about it into something then you wanted to share with the world, perhaps you can talk us sort of what the, the origins of that. Because yeah. it started, like all podcasts, I guess, when you did the first one, you didn't expect it to become as possibly yeah. as big or as seminal or as, you know, because ultimately yeah. that's led to the book. Yeah, absolutely. I call it the Daisley Phenomenon. Okay, here we go. <laughs> uh, entirely a passion project. Probably for the first six months I did it, I never even looked at the audience figures. I never, right. I never really even knew how to find my audience figures on it was merely me in an act of self-education so occasionally you know I used to say to people it's quite a lonely thing podcasting you know as I was saying to you before I do my tops and tails of it in my wardrobe at home is that a conscious choice to do it in a wardrobe uh, better acoustics fair enough better acoustics and so so um also, so that suggests it's quite a sizable wardrobe. No, 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 no. If you search online about microphone acoustics, they often say if you don't have soundproofing, if you put your microphone in a coat cupboard, then it just soaks up all of the spare sound. Funny enough, in our previous, my previous job in agency, our, when we used to do things for adverts and stuff, it was in a coat. Yeah, it, absolutely. It did work a treat. Yeah, absolutely. Just soaks up all the, the dead sounds. So you don't get any sort of, of the slightly annoying echo and just background sort of tinniness. Um, so that's why I do it there. And uh, and so what was the question? The question the mentor, was... The mentor of your podcast. Where? Yeah, so, so look, I did it specifically because I was interested in seeing if I could improve the workplace that I worked in. Yeah. And... Then I started discovering things, <laughs> and there's loads of really captivating science. There's a guy called Sandy Pentland at Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and they've got a, um, a play lab at uh, the lab there, which is sort of um, just a home of loads of innovation. So loads of stuff for Lego has been done there, stuff for PlayStation has been done there, loads of companies, because there's just people messing around with new technology. Oh, you know, new chips. I wonder what that could do if we did embedded it. And they largely just create proof of concept ideas. Yeah. And one of the ideas they came up with was they put all of the stuff that you might find in a modern mobile phone in people's work ID badges. So they put microphones, they put RFID chips, they put Bluetooth devices. And then they started thinking, okay, how could we use this? Oh, how we could use this is we could spot a bit like players' opta ratings during sport games, yeah. we could spot where people have been in the office. We could spot who's talked to who. Okay, let's let's um, change the microphone so it listens to tonality rather than content. Yeah. But we can listen to whether people are asking questions or whether the people are giving... Right, let's see what happens. Then they started going, oh, we're starting to build a really fascinating data set here, almost like tracking... The, the kinetic energy of an office, who's ch- talking to who, and, and then they were able to say, oh, this office, when we look at the productivity of it, it seems that offices that have got this behaviour, yeah. extremely kinetic, loads of people talking to each other, they seem to be more productive. The offices which are <coughs> close to silent, people don't talk to each other. So they started making hypotheses based on that. Really fascinating. No one who has a job ever gets to hear any of that. Right. So the conclusion that they made, the guy that Sandy Sandy Pentland made, was, oh, face-to-face converse, conversation seems to be the dynamic force that drives the productivity, creativity, and output of offices. 
Right, that's a big insight. That's a huge. That's uh, a big insight, especially because most of us work in working environments now, where face-to-face chat and conversation and and you know just chat about water cooler moment stuff is sort of disappearing. You know, we're, we're all becoming slightly more individualistic. People are donning headphones in the office, you know, <coughs> through good reason, but they're they're making adaptations. Right. If you start with if you start with that in mind that chat seems to be something that leads to innovation, then you might calibrate certain things in offices differently. Yeah. So, but, like, that's brilliant. That's what, I mean, what a remarkable nugget to discover. No one who has a job ever gets to hear that. Yeah. So for me, that became like this, this epiphany. Right, okay, I wonder what the ways I could share that to, with people in seven pages. So it's not like this daunting amount to read, but you can... You can download a bit of incredible information. So that's that became my motivating factor, really. You know, what are the ways to navigate open plan offices? What's the ways to navigate the way that we're working today? So that was the reason okay. why I did it. So across the, all that sort of part, and obviously the, the podcast has grown and grown as a phenomenon, and you got to that, I think that sort of almost beauty point now where you can pretty much, I'm imagining, you can get people on board who hitherto, when you first did it, have gone, oh, I don't know, because you were Bruce Daisy, you know, Twitter, but you get the Godens and the Trots and that. So it must be quite fascinating. Who would you say, I guess, who who have given you the the, the, the really great things? That yeah. Maybe, maybe it's more surprising, I guess, because you get, yeah. they are superstars like Godens. Yeah. But who, who's been someone who's like, wow. That's so look, you know, uh, probably the sort of the big iconic names I've spoken to, people like Seth Godin, like you say. Trotty was Dan on there, Ping, wasn't he? Dave Trot. Um, for me, Adam Grant is probably the most revered workplace thinker in the world. But the the, interviewer, the interviews I've enjoyed the most are probably Professor Sophie Scott, who's a professor at uh, London Queen Mary's. And she... She's a psychologist, but one of the things that she specialises in is in vocalisations. So yeah. she's very interested in laughter. And, yeah. I, and what she told me was so magnificent, like captivating. I ended up speaking to the world's leading expert on laughter, a guy called Professor Robert Provine. Yeah. Um, but then the one I've been most moved by was a woman called Zeynep Tan, Turkish-American, uh, works out of MIT, And she did loads of work studying retail stores. So I always love it when this stuff permeates beyond office jobs into real jobs, you know. Some of the best episodes I've done have been in the NHS or in uh, police forces. But Zeynep Tan was in retail stores. And she was describing to me how she'd explored how um, some of the most profitable retail stores in the world, like a diner in Spain, a quick trip in the US... Uh, the sort of specialist stores, but they'd set about having good workplace cultures. Yeah. And it had been their strategic advantage that led to them being more profitable. So Mercadana makes about 50% more per square foot than Carrefour. You know, they're their sort of main competitor, albeit in a different country. And um, and the and just an illustration, really, that giving people good workplace conditions doesn't seem to be this act of grand altruism, but more can be a really good business strategy. So I thought she was the best saying it, Tom. Okay, so now in the, the, uh, the world I operate in, we're, we're like a startup, and I know that people listen to us are the same because of the nature startup businesses. And obviously some of the interesting work considerations are about work at scale amongst big teams. 
But sort of maybe from some, you could give us a little bit of insight on some of the stuff you've talked to, the people you talked to, the research you've read about maybe smaller businesses. If you are a one-man band or two or three of you, and you might collaborate with others, what sort of things can you bring? Because I'm hearing what you're saying about face-to-face. But if you're that more isolated, what are the sort of things that can actually help? What should you be thinking about in terms of improving your sort of work yeah I mean, your joy look, of work when you talk about people who work from home or people who work on their own often their stress levels are higher than uh, certainly people who work from home there are often, Hell yeah. their stress yeah. levels are higher than people who work in the office which is um which is not what you perceive from the outside you perceive everyone perceives you know that freelance working from home life as the easy life sort of the dream and in fact it there was a survey done by the UN where they said that stress levels are 70% higher by people who work in that environment. So, you know, firstly, we've got to use a bit of evidence to challenge what our initial assumptions are. If you work from home in a normal job, then the evidence suggests that people think their colleagues don't trust them and they think their boss thinks they're not working. It's so, switching, yes. Yeah, more that's right. So that's what people presume. Um, so worth, worth taking that on board. I think the, the thing that I would say is that when we look at the evidence of how creativity comes about, creativity often is done in isolation. It's moments of people focusing, having these <coughs> uh, insights, but then they tend to check those creative ideas with other people. So the way that Sandy Pentland described it, for example, is he says that it's almost like you create an idea out in the field. He described it like bees. He said that the work is done out in the field, they're out gathering pollen, like that's that's the sort of the work, the cognitive process. But then they come back to the hive and they sort of perform their dance. And that was his view that, you know, like that, people have their moments of deep thought, cognition, but then they come back and they, um, the metaphor for dancing in the hive is like, they run it by, I'll run it past you, I'll say, I'm thinking of this, and you wince. And I realise, okay, the next person I suggest that to, I'm just going to say it in a slightly different way. I go over and say it to, to um, someone else, and, and she's like, okay, that seems right. right. And what we've done is we've taken a flash of inspiration, we've sanded a few rough we'll edges up. That's right, bit, yeah. that's right, that's yeah. right. That's the way he describes it. From observing the data, he says, that's how an idea comes about. Now, I'll tell you one thing, because you mentioned Dan Pink. I've seen mm. Dan Pink talk. He's amazing, isn't he, right? In fact, I saw him at... Um, he did that book about sleep, hasn't he? Mm. About best... When, when, yeah, when you, to operate sleep. I saw actually. that. So I immediately, in my old job, I took to having naps where I wanted to. It didn't go down very well, really. I just thought <laughs> I was a recovery alcoholic or something. I just thought, it's early in the afternoon. Were you doing it at your desk? Or yeah, what? I slept under my desk. Right, People okay. sort of thought it was very weird and eccentric, whereas yeah. I woke up feeling that thing about you're only supposed to do it for 18 minutes yeah. and then because you don't want to go That's what the disabled lose for, isn't it? Exactly. Well, I wish I'd known. Wish I'd known. <laughs> I'd have done it. And it's, to me, it's interesting because a lot of the things I, I hear on your podcast, because I was saying to you before we came on, on here, I was saying about, actually, I used to, Listen to your thing on the train, and when you and oh, it's amazing. Go away, have my little moment. Yeah. inside yeah. bring him to work, and they'd all be like, "Well, rebuff," and it kind yeah. of made me think, "Oh, maybe this isn't the place to yeah. be thinking progressively to bring you know joy and productivity." Um, I was thinking, what what's as a, as a tip to people? Uh, how how is what is the best possible way that people can, if they have these sort of things, to make their you can totally get why somewhere should be a better place to work and how you can make it happen because it's not always easy having the inspiration is one thing but making it happen is a different yeah you've got any, what sort of advice would you give yeah i think you know more often than not um uh cultures changed at a team level rather than at the individual level so yeah. so you, you might have a boss that you think he's 
unsupportive or not willing to go along with it. And I think the best thing you can possibly do is try and bring a bit of evidence to a team situation. Yeah. So, you know, you might have a boss who emails all weekend, for example. Well, there's loads of evidence that you can bring to that discussion about how cortisol levels are much higher for people who work all weekend. And actually, cortisol seems to be one of the most powerful things at killing our creativity. So if your boss wants your team to come up with good ideas... Him or her emailing all weekend is pretty much the most guaranteed way to kill those ideas. Now, your boss is then presented with a choice. Do I prefer emailing all weekend or do I prefer creativity? And look, they're presented with a choice. Most bosses, when presented with that, will go, okay, I'd much rather my team come up with good ideas with creativity. than me sitting there all Sunday afternoon emailing them. So right. another one, is that, which I think I, I love, is this thing about um, startup world. Uh, we're always looking for opportunities, like all sorts of startups, trying to get it. You spend a lot of time working beyond what you probably a comfortable work. There's like you know, the, 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 is it Jack Ma, the Alibaba? Yeah, that nine nine seven mentality. Yeah, nine nine six. It's yeah, like, yeah. it's like yeah, yeah. I'm like that sounds like amazing if you could do it. It's slightly dysfunctional. Yeah, but, but I think I've read in your stuff. It's like this this forty hour thing. That yes, really, it, it tails off. Do eighty, you think? Yes, yeah, so there's two pieces of work on that. So um, a piece of work done by John Penkerville at Stanford University looked at the capacity of human bodies to do physical labour. And so he said, he said effectively at 56 hours, that's the peak of physical labour. So if you or I sat out, Richard, and we were chopping wood, then you know we might have the illusion that we could chop wood 10 hours a day, seven days a week. But actually, our productivity, the amount of wood we chop, peaks at around 56 hours. Right. In fact, between the 50 hours and 56 hours, the marginal gain is so little, yeah. pretty much you'd be silly doing it. So really, <laughs> the most you can physically work is around 50, 50 hours a week, really. Um, now, that, that begs the question, is knowledge work, is cognitive work more versatile than that? Can yeah. we work longer? And the unfortunate heuristic we've got is that we've, we've all had those hours, those, those times, maybe we're working at university or college or school or whatever, where we worked late into the night and we got stuff done. And so we know, all right, okay, I one day work till 4 a.m. Okay, but unfortunately, what we forget is you slept all day the next day and, you know, you had a blowout that weekend and you were exhausted, but you caught up and by... You've been observing my life. Right, but, but the following week, you were sort, you'd hit the deadline, you'd worked hard, but by God, you sort of... But we've got this unfortunate memory that, you know, the, the brain loves narrative. And so we've got this unfortunate memory which says, oh, the story of, of work is we can work long and hard. When you actually look at people's capacity to do knowledge work, it suggests that it's actually less durable than physical work, that cognitive work, when it's going to be maximised, you, you can, the estimates are between about 38 hours, one, one guy measured it in his firm, 38 and 45 hours sort of seems to be the, the broad range. That's not what we tell ourselves, is it? What we tell ourselves is we can work late into the night. Hours. We, that's right, we can pull all nighters. Now, it might well be, if you're in a startup, then there's some moments where you're actually just doing physical labour. You're stuffing envelopes, you're, you're moving stuff around, you're, not, you're actually sort of do, doing uh, physical stuff. But when it comes down to, I'd have thought any startup lives or dies by the ingenuity of its thinking. It's sort of outmaneuvering, they're on speedboats, outmaneuvering the battleships of these sort of big incumbent competitors. And it's just worth knowing that when it comes down to your inventiveness, your creativity, 
then if you enter into that in a state state of exhaustion or stress, you're not going to be as inventive as you want to be. Oh, amen. Amen. Mm. Why do you favor? Do you know what? You should get yourself a podcast. Yes. Right? Hello. Be a blockbuster. <laughs> hey, I'm, I'd love to. I'd love to talk flowers, right? Although to be honest, you told me we shouldn't because it would decline. Wouldn't yeah. The quality. Would. Yeah. So would go you've got to talk to do. So I'm going to wrap. I'm going to say thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. And uh, thanks for coming to Bristol. And um, all the very best with whatever comes next. Thank you very much. Thank you.